Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written that you might be interested in and tell you how to access them. Over the years, I have done a good deal of writing to prepare resources that I think should be helpful to my congregation and also helpful to you, our listeners. So grab a pen and paper and get prepared to write down a website. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will find there a tab that says Articles. If you will open that with your cursor, you will discover there are some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. I'm not a regular blogger, but when things pop up on my radar that I feel I would like to address in a thoughtful way, I will sometimes produce a longer article. So I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. We continue our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We've come now to Hebrews chapter 4. Here's the argument in an overview in chapter 4. Then we'll go to the text. Our author is addressing Hebrew Christians who become, some of them, unstable in their faith. There's internal evidence in the epistle that they become a little bit restive in the face of persecution. They become lax about sin and sluggish in their attentiveness to the Word of God. All those things are bad signs. It's no surprise, therefore, that this book is full of warning passages about the peril of apostasy. Apostasy means falling away from God. It's a fatal lapse of faith in turning away from Christ, and in their case, back to Judaism. Though later, our author will express confidence in these Hebrew Christians that that fatal lapse will not occur, Nevertheless, he feels compelled, like a prophet, to warn them not to emulate the faithlessness of their forebears. Those forebears God rejected, when in unbelief they again and again disregarded God's word. And they're showing signs of repeating that same error. In chapter 3, our author cited Psalm 95. There, the Lord testified to his displeasure in the Exodus generation. And in Psalm 95, he swore that those people would not enter into his rest. That's a key term around which chapter 4 pivots. Our author admonishes these Hebrew Christians not to replicate the unbelief of that Exodus generation in rejecting, at last, the good news preached to them, just as they had rejected the good news preached by Moses in their day, 
Should they do so, they will miss out on the promise of entering into God's eternal rest, just as their forefathers did. So lest they fail to appreciate the seriousness of the writer's warnings and think that the rest God swore that the Exodus generation would not enter was simply the opportunity to enter the land of Canaan, the promised land, our author takes pains to show now in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, that this awful verdict declared against their fathers that they should not enter God's rest referred not to entering the promised land, but it referred to entry into the rest of eternal salvation, the salvation rest of God spoken of back in Genesis, when God terminated his creative work, and when God was said in Genesis to have rested from his works. Those who believe, those who trust God, he points out, have a share in that state of eternal rest, ceasing from their own works as God did from his. To us, it's a peculiar concept, but all we have to know is that it referred to the rest of eternal salvation. That rest was not something Israel entered into back in the time of Joshua, but it's a goal set before Israel, he shows long after. So his message is, as we continue to review the thrust of chapter 4, his message is, folks, don't duplicate their unbelief with your own, and don't miss out on entering into God's rest. That's exactly what you will do if you do not listen to the good news that has come to you in Jesus Christ and his servants if you do not hold fast to your faith. So don't be tempted to return to Judaism. Don't be tempted to go back to relying on your own legal works to gain an accepted standing before God, but by faith in Christ enter into God's Sabbath rest. Again, an expression that describes the eternal peace and repose that belongs to those who trust not in their own works for salvation, but trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ for their redemption. That's an overview of chapter 4. Now, before we plunge ahead into chapter 4, we should probably deal with a question that may be nagging at some sensitive hearts. Well, Jim, I certainly don't want to be a modern-day example of the Israelites in the wilderness who provoke God and cause Him to reject them for their unbelief. But, Pastor, to tell you the truth, I find it a little hard for self-evaluation purposes to assess that. I mean, look... The defining moment for me was when I trusted Christ as my Savior. I mean, Jim, that clenched the deal, I thought. What more is there to say? Well, friends, first of all, it does seal the deal. But here's the point. I can't emphasize it strongly enough. The faith that trusts in Jesus Christ as one's Lord and Savior is just that. It professes to receive Him, not only as our atoning sacrifice, but it also acknowledges him as our Lord to whom we ought to give obedience. To trust in him as such, that naturally means that when we come to Christ, we in faith submit to his will and his ways, because we trust his will, and we trust that his ways are good and wise. We trust that they glorify God and they edify us and everyone around us. You see, we cannot divorce or slice up or bifurcate Christ like an apple pie. We cannot go around, as some people profess to do, taking him a piece at a time. 
Oh, when I was 20 years old, I accepted Christ as my Savior, but I never followed him as my Lord. I didn't get around to that until I was 45. You hear that kind of thing all the time. Well, if we trust him at all, we may not understand in the beginning all the implications of what that trust means. We grow into our shoes. But if we trust in him, really trust in him, we trust in his name. And when we trust in his name, that concept includes all that he is. He's Savior. He's Lord. It's absurd to think that trusting faith only buys into Christ as Savior and refuses his lordship. Now, as I say, people may not always get it right off, everything that is involved in his lordship, but to refuse his lordship, uh-uh. That notion is a name, though, as I say, one hears folk who profess to have done that quite a lot. I always say, well, then... If you say you received Christ as your Lord when you were 45, that's probably when you were saved. So if we trust in Christ as our Savior, as it were, but only give lip service to his Lordship, we do not really trust his will and his ways. and We don't believe his promises and his warnings strongly enough to hear his voice and follow him. Then clearly what we call faith is not what God means by faith. Well, so how, Jim, someone says, should I examine myself from time to time? I mean, how can I be sure I'm not fooling myself and living in spiritual presumption as ancient Israel did, that generation back there in the wilderness? As we learn from 1 Corinthians 10, most of them fell under the hand of God's judgment. Well, I suggest we ask ourselves questions like these. Do you believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to redeem us from our sins? Do you believe that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except through him? You say, yes, good. That's a great starting point. Secondly, does Jesus Christ and his word direct my decision-making? Jesus, in John chapter 10, said, My sheep know my voice, and he said, They follow me. That's their habit. Well, do you follow Jesus? Oh, I don't mean to you get it all right. None of us do. But is that your heart? Is that what you try to do? Is follow Jesus? Can you say, that's my plan, that's my desire when I get up in the morning every week? I just desire to be a follower of Jesus, and I try to be. That's good. That's good. Are you attempting, to the best of your understanding, to follow Christ in your way of life? That is, do you choose to do things or elect not to do other things because... You say, I'm following Christ. That's good. You make Christian choices. That's good. And do you reject unchristian choices? That speaks well for the fact that an honest faith dwells in your heart. Does the voice of God ever convict you of sin? And when it does, do you repent in response to the voice of the Spirit? Or do you just wait until you get over it and keep going in the same old ways? That's not good. Can you honestly say, I fear God, by that I mean, that I reverence God in such a way that I'm fearful of bringing down divine displeasure on myself? That's good. One's answer to questions of this sort are pretty good indicators of the presence or absence of a sincere faith. Now, this brings us right into chapter 4. The chapter is a continuation of the previous discussion in chapter 3, and it's the conclusion of chapter 3. Therefore, he says, let us fear, while a promise remains of entering into his rest. That's a phraseology found in Psalm 95, which has been the basis of his exhortation from chapter 3, 7 to this point. 
Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have come short of it. It's worth noting and passing a point that I made earlier about what I called this urban myth of modern ministry. And that urban myth is that somehow it's unworthy of the gospel of grace, somehow sub-Christian, to summon people to obey God by any motive or incentive that appeals to fear or guilt. Right here, right here, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, we see the fallacy, the error of that notion where we have a direct appeal to fear. The point is that the Spirit of God, folks, appeals to every legitimate motive. And so should we, as the author does here. Always say in connection with this, I love my father, but I feared my father when I overstepped his boundaries. He loved me, I knew that. But it's the same way with God. There are avoidable outcomes of behavior to be rightly feared. And we should never be slow to point out that sin does not pay and God does not wink at disobedience. There are things we ought to feel profoundly guilty about. Otherwise, who would repent and turn away from self-destructive, God-dishonoring attitudes and behaviors? In those cases, we ought to turn to screws of guilt, absolutely. Of course, people don't like that. But God does, and it is Him that we ought to please, not the crowd that insists on a feel-good experience whenever they come to church and are confronted with the Word of God, if, in fact, they are confronted with the Word of God. Now, back to the argument. There is a way, dear friends, to come out of the world in a merely formal sense and become identified with Christ through baptism and to share in the blessings of the local church, the blessings of the Christian community, just as their forefathers came out of Egypt in a formal sense, became identified with Moses in passing through the waters of the Red Sea. And all of that generation individually shared in those divine provisions intended for his chosen people, Israel. Yet at the end of the day, despite all that, to still inwardly be of the world, just as that generation of Israelites spiritually never left Egypt. But they remained unbelievers in spite of all that they had seen and heard. Verse 2, For indeed we have had the good news preached to us, just as they also. Keeps drawing that analogy between the present generation, these Hebrew Christians, and that one. Problem is, the word, God's message they heard, did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. How do we know it was not united by faith? Because they kept disobeying God, they kept rebelling against Him. This formal attachment to the covenant community without the inward faith of their father Abraham is what the author is sternly warning these modern-day Hebrew believers to fear. And we should take note as well. He doesn't want to say that any of them have come short of the mark, but they are close enough to disaster if any should seem to human judgment to come up short. Again, in verse 2, he draws the analogy between them and their forefathers' situation. The writer makes it crystal clear that one thing qualifies people of God to enter into God's rest, and one thing disqualifies, no matter what other credentials one may be depending on as their security. That one qualifying credential is faith, which is, as we've seen, manifest in heeding God's word, listening to God's voice. That's something that some of them are in danger of spurning 
if they do not heed the message of God's Son. For we indeed have had the good news preached to us, referring to the gospel of Christ, just as they also, in their deliverance from Egyptian bondage through Moses, they had great news preached to them through Moses. But the word, the good news they heard, it didn't do them a bit of good. didn't do them any good, because that generation never attained entry into the promised land, either into the physical promised land, the land of Cana, or in the spiritual sense, never entered into God's rest. The reason they didn't was because, he says, it was not united by faith in the hearts of those who heard. Now notice, the author says, how identical in principle your position is to theirs. Both of you have had a message of deliverance from God proclaimed to you. Formerly that generation got out of Egypt, but functionally they never really did. They never actually entered into Cana, that is, that first generation that came out of Egypt. And the reason was simply that for all their connections with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in spite of their covenant relationship with God as his chosen nation, in spite of all the oracles and the promises belonging to this nation, they didn't reach the goal. They didn't make the cut, so to speak. And for one reason, the word of God which they heard in their ears was never met with faith in their hearts. We know that because of their constant disobedience. See that in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3. With whom did he swear that they should not enter into his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Those two terms juxtaposed flip sides of the other. Oh yeah, once in a while when God did some stupendous work, that generation would get all pious, they'd sing new songs, they'd praise the Lord, they'd get very religious briefly. But the next time those people hit a bump, happened every time, they came to another defining and testing moment. What'd they do? They tested God rather than trusted Him. They said, show me and we'll go. God says, no, go and I'll show you. The privilege of entering into God's rest, the rest that He swore they should never enter back in Psalm 95, it's reserved exclusively for those who believe. For we who have believed enter into that rest, not those who don't believe. That rest he referred to when he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So, verse 4, he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from his works, and again in this passage, they shall not enter into my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them, they fail to enter because of unbelief. Now let's sort all that out. The author is shifting his focus a bit. He's moving from making the point that unbelief disqualified the Exodus generation from entering God's rest, to now showing that the phrase God's rest, used back in Psalm 95, a prophecy that has been the basis of this whole discussion from 3-7 on, that phrase, God's rest, has reference to something greater than the rest God gave Israel in the promised land of Canaan. It has reference to an eternal rest, or what he will shortly call a Sabbath rest. Now the logic here, I can help you with this, but the logic is a bit strange to us. It's strange because the author is dealing in concepts that are foreign to our natural way of thinking. So to understand him, we have to get on his page. By that I mean we have to yield to his perspectives and presuppositions and follow him from there. 
Perhaps a very loose amplification of his thought will help us track here. Here it is. The rest that we who believe enter into is precisely that rest which in Psalm 95 God swore the Exodus generation would not enter into. Now, the my rest God had reference to must not be confused, he says, with the divine rest that was going to start at some point up ahead when, 40 years later, Israel entered Cana, the land of promise. Don't confuse it with that. That's what you're likely to do, this writer is saying. No, no. It transcends that. God's works, in the sense of this phrase my rest speaks of, God's works, he tells them, were consummated from the foundation of the world. For you'll recall that back there in Genesis, it was said of the seventh day, after six days of activity, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. So, clearly, we see that this rest, to which our forefathers were denied entrance, has reference to a greater rest, one already in place, of which Canaan was only a type, not the fulfillment. For the end of the creative work of God marks the initiation of this eternal divine rest, or Sabbath. When it was said, you shall not enter into my rest, it was this pre-existing Sabbath rest of God, which was especially in view though in their case they were excluded in both the temporal and the eternal sense. Having amplified the eternal dimension embedded in the my rest phraseology of Psalm 95, the author now returns to warn and to apply this truth to these Hebrew Christians. He exhorts them to a sense of urgency. He exhorts them to be diligent to make dead sure they enter that eternal, or what he calls Sabbath rest, Seventh-day rest, that some of their ancestors failed to enter. Clearly, he says, we're not talking about a historical rest, that which involved entering into the land of Cana. For all of us, he says, the issue is still out there, and one's destiny in that regard hinges on the obedience of faith. So he says, since therefore it remains down to this day for some to enter God's rest, that rest which began on the seventh day of the week of creation, and those who formerly had the news preached to them, the good news preached to them, in a different form, with different promises, since they failed to enter or capitalize on God's grace extended to them because of their disobedience, that is, their rebelliousness was symptomatic of underlying disbelief in God's faithfulness, God, through the psalmist, long after Israel had taken possession of the land of Canaan, long after that, he fixes or designates a certain day or time frame as today, saying to David, after all that time, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts and enter into my rest. These words, verse 8, addressed to Israel, after the nation had been settled in the promised land for hundreds of years, well, that makes it perfectly plain that the rest that God denied to them was something far beyond any rest he gave the nation Israel in Cana under Joshua. For he says, if Joshua had given them rest, then centuries after the Lord would not have spoken to David of the possibility of entering his rest, if only today Israel would listen to his voice and not harden their hearts, as their fathers had done, and been rejected for that privilege. So the case is clenched. There is a Sabbath rest, or an eternal rest, for the people of God. 
a rest that God extends to all those who believe the blessing of entering into that rest that he began on the seventh day of creation. And there we will have to end our study for today and pick it up next time. Thank you, dear friends, for joining us on The Final Word. God bless you and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Be sure the word. Be sure the word. Just be sure the word gets in the hand.